The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there is a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I am Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host. And Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. And you can follow live tweeting of the show, ask questions, or make comments about the show during the program on Twitter at hashtag bigbeacon. Our first segment is sponsored by the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at WholeNewEngineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And uh, today we're blessed to uh, be joined uh, by uh, educational provocateur, entrepreneur, and uh, author uh, Bob Cavaney. Welcome to the show, Bob. Thank you very much, David. It's a pleasure to join you. Well, glad to have you on on the show. And... um, We'll get into some of the um, some of the details of the ways in which you're trying to uh, upset the apple cart, especially in uh, K-12 education. But uh, you've you've been an entrepreneur. You're an author. Uh, you are an education provocateur. But let's go back in the time machine. What were some of the early influences that uh, put you on your current path? You know, it's funny, Dave. I didn't realize it at the time, um, but after disliking uh, my K-12 educational experience and then going into college and uh, having just a delightful experience at a a little liberal arts college that no longer exists at San Jose State University where uh, we students had to design our own major. Um, And yet we also intercooperated with uh, many other students in what they were doing and studied things in a very interdisciplinary way. But I, I, I actually wrote a thesis in uh, applying transpersonal psychology to groups, and little did I know um, that that was what I'd essentially be doing, um, you know, 30, 40 years later. Uh, uh, but anyway, so, but bottom line is I did not like school, a K-12 school, loved the autonomy, uh, and, and once I got connected to my own purpose in college, and that um, that little influence came back um, many years later, after my kids were already in, in K twelve themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's so. Int- it's interesting how, and actually, in, in you, we've we've actually got sort of um, it, we hear this over and over again. We hear both the 
both positive experiences, like the one in your liberal arts college, and then we hear the negative experiences, like your um, experience in in K twelve. What what was uh, we're talking? I think I think we're uh, near contemporaries, and this goes back. We're talking seventies uh, kind of territory. But what was it about your sixties uh, and seventies? What was it about your K twelve that was uh, problematic for you? Well, even even as a as a young person, I knew that it was um, a, a lot of uh, BS because there I was sitting at a desk. I already knew a lot of the material, and yet, and yet I had to sit there and listen to what I already knew, um, which just bored out of my gourd uh, hour after hour after hour. Um, I'll never <laughs> I'll never forget that in eighth grade um, I had transferred from a. Uh, private school into a public school. I was way ahead of all the other kids and um, got A's and all the tests, uh, but flunked the course because I didn't do the homework, you know. And I just thought, well, this is nonsense. You know, it's not it's not a, about what it's supposed to be about, you know. Um, and so it, it, it obviously did not touch me as a human being. And, you know, education really should uh, touch kids as human beings. Um, it was it was the opposite of that to K twelve, and it wasn't the people's fault. It was it was a system problem, but um, it was yeah. uh, it was it was a very unhealthy experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the, the then the counterpoint to that, and actually, I I was reading through your bio, and the, there's this line in there, and I, and I wasn't sure how to interpret it, but I think I'm I'm getting the sense of it now that you said that you went to this liberal. Uh, art school until you were educated enough. So it sounds like you didn't feel the need to, uh, and that's actually sort of a modern kind of thing to do. Kids that kind of start businesses, do interesting things, they don't feel the need to get a college degree. We put so much emphasis on the college degree, but even back then, um, you 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 called it. You called the shots and and decided when you were educated enough. Am I reading that right? Absolutely. You know, um, what a concept, uh, thinking for yourself, you know, um, deciding <laughs> when you've gotten enough, you know, moving on, you know. Um, today, you know, uh, I find too many people, adults, professionals, yep. don't think for themselves. And if anything comes out of a good education, it's the ability to think for yourself, decide for yourself. Where do you want to go? How are you going to get there? Very, very important. Well, and and of course, in in higher education, of course, the the PhDs become de rigor, and and the idea that someone would not not finish their bachelor's, not get a master's, and then not get a PhD is sort of anathema to the whole culture of higher education. And yet, we've kind of lost track of um, of of what education is supposed to be about: about thinking for yourself and and uh, doing uh, doing beautiful things in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, and and maybe we've already heard it, um, but um, as you know, in A Whole New Engineer, Mark Somerville and I write about unleashing experiences, and I think this is consistent with a number of the concepts in in uh, your writing and in um, in your organization, uh, uh, School, do we, do we pronounce it Schoolio or Schoolio? Schoolio. Schoolio, that's what, that's what I, okay, that's what I thought it. It sounds cooler that way, but anyway, in Schoolio, I think this is consistent with with some some of the ideas there. But we you know, we place a lot of emphasis on the unleashing of young people to the possibilities in their lives, and so 
um, it sounds like the liberal arts uh, education was unleashing for you in the sense that it gave you courage to go your own way, gave you courage to leave before finishing a degree. But um, what uh, was that the main unleashing experience? What other unleashing experiences or what other uh, people tr- in, in your life trusted you so you had the courage to go your own way? Well, I, I have to say that uh, my parents um, uh, were people who both, uh, they each trust themselves, and mm. so they were hugely influential. Um, but I also have to give a, a lot of credit as I was going through this journey, which is now nine years in, to yep. um, a number of uh, friends who, you know, uh, could think for themselves as well, you know. Um, you know, Sanford Porte, Ann Griswold, uh, uh, Mitch Gazet. Uh, Howard Zolte, um, Il- Ilona Budapesti, uh, uh, Eileen Bellis, and uh, these folks uh, were very encouraging simply by being willing to listen and hear, and and they thought for themselves, and they they found resonance. So it was, you know, it's it's always a good idea to think for yourself. It's also a good idea to check in with other people. What do you think as well? Be open to hearing some other thoughts. So I, I credit my uh, my parents. I credit my friends and colleagues. Uh, with uh, help, helping me along this journey. Mm-hmm. Was there a, was there a moment? Um, you know, sometimes uh, there are moments where you say, you know, I wonder if I should do this, and and because it's it's off it's off the deep end or it's on the edge, it's not in the norm, and you go, no, I need to do this. Was there a moment or two or a moment like that for you where you weren't sure, but you went ahead and did it anyways? There were two moments. Um, Mm. One moment was um, an odd moment. Um, You know, when I first started this whole thing, it was, you know, I just went down to get uh, some homework that my son had forgotten, you know. And this was during the 2007 recession. Um, I had a market research business that was just collapsing with the recession. And I was looking for something else to do anyway. And I walked into the school and something came over me, David. I can't explain it. I thought, let me, let me, let me work on this for a while, you know. Mm. And I, I have no explanation for that. I just thought maybe I could do something. That was moment number one, which I can't explain. Number two, uh, two years later, um, it was, it was um, an, an, an Tiffany, uh, that actually uh, didn't actually come from me. It actually came from the, this teacher, George, that I've been working with for two years. Yep. After failing over and over again for two years, you know, we're finally, I'm finally starting to get a, a little bit of a clue, you know. And, you know, I don't consider myself the brightest bulb on the, on the tree, but, uh, but I'm very persistent. And after a couple of years, you know, we've, I, I find out, to my surprise, you know, I don't know why I didn't find this out earlier, but over a third of the students in the sixth grade math class were not ready for sixth grade math. You know? And, mm. you know, so it was, the teacher was attempting the impossible to teach them material they were not ready for. And when I told George, well, we have to stop right now and get them ready and then go back to your sixth grade math. And then he told me something that just changed everything. He says, Bob, uh, I can't do that. I have to teach following a teaching schedule. You know, I have to follow a schedule. I can't stop and get them ready. And that was the moment mm-hmm. that got me focusing on a, an 18, learning about an 1890 follow the schedule assembly line method yep. that schools are unconsciously using today. 
that is cause and effect of students becoming ahead, bored, idle, and the other students behind, falling more behind, getting discouraged, and believing it's their fault. So there's these good people working inside this method. Once I realize, oh, my God, there actually is a structure underneath this, that maybe if we change the underlying structure, we could make progress. Once I saw that, I couldn't, I couldn't unsee it. And that, that's, mm-hmm. then I really bit hard and kept, and kept moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so and I think that brings us up to probably the point in the time I think we're talking about the period. In 2008, you founded Schoolio.org. And so um, what, what, is, what is Schoolio and what's it all about? Well, the, uh, what we're essentially a, 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 a going to do, David, and we're, we're in the process of this right now, uh, we're essentially going to uh, prove a different method of management is actually effective, and we're going to make a little mini K-12 sector, you know. So um, we've invented a, a method of management called the I-O method. The I stands for the inner higher self, and the O stands for organizing, um, and it and Schoolio is, is meant to help implement this method in real public schools and to prove that it works. And it begins by understanding what, what we believe is the right problem to work on. So uh, I oftentimes say, if you work on a wrong problem for 100 years in K-12, you can make the problem seem intractable, complex, difficult, you know. But once you understand the right problem to work on, everything gets beautiful, profound, and much, much easier. So as we understand the quote-unquote right problem to work on, it's this. You know, kids are beautifully different, very unique, different needs, abilities, and interests. And let's say you have 30 of them in a classroom. Well, the one adult brings with him or her each day just one mouth. And so as a practical matter, we're going to have to provide a certain amount of autonomy, freedom, and have students learn how to self-organize the work to their own ability, ideally, as time goes on, more aligned with their own discovered interests and dreams. The problem is, and we're, we're, we're getting right up next to the, to the right problem, um, providing students freedom has been tried several times. It's never worked. And the reason is that many students, maybe even most high school students, are not yet wise and responsible enough to use the freedom. So if we give students the freedom they need to self-organize the work, too many of them end up on the Internet or looking out the window or causing problems, but they're actually not working. Now we have a real problem. I'm sorry, go ahead, Dave. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. And, you know, and on the show, we're kind of big fans of uh, Barry Johnson's work on polarity management. And so I'm hearing a, a polarity there between direction and telling students what to do and freedom. And so sometimes we... Um, sometimes people will look at a whole new engineer and say, well, you guys are going to create engineers that have bridges collapse and so forth because they haven't, they haven't got the basics. But we're actually not talking about moving from uh, full structure and the form that we have to complete freedom. We're talking about balancing or managing that polarity between freedom and structure differently. And I and I think that that's what you're talking about in the I.O. method, that they're talking about a different way of organization with structure, and but that builds in 
a different kind of respect for freedom. Is that is that fair? Comment, please. I, 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 it's absolutely a fair comment. Uh, I'm just going to insert one little thing before we actually sure. do the, the creating and learning, you know. So um, the, the problem, as we understand it, is that we must provide freedom to students, but because they're kids and they're not yet wise and responsible, they're not able to use the freedom. And that's a, that's a big problem. And so, but, what, but here's the good news. If we could, and we can, we have good evidence, make students wise and responsible, then it would be safe to provide the very freedom students need to self-organize the work to their own ability, even the official work. And the, the way we do this is by going back to what education originally meant from the Latin educere, to lead out the student from within. Now, there's a lot more to it, but the core of the idea is this. If we turn teachers into trained educators with an educational psychology and then have them lead students through a series of very precisely designed inner psychological exercises, students become personally powerful. They learn how to ask and hear the wise part within that we all have. And now they are becoming wise. As they discover that not only do they have a will, but with the skill of the will, they can do just about anything and then to their amazement do it. They find out they can respond responsibly. And David, I'm sure you've run across this before. A lot of kids and even adults cannot focus their mind for more than a few seconds. Their mind gets yanked away. And if, if someone can't focus their own mind for more than a few seconds, it's really not possible to learn consciously and intentionally. And we strengthen this ability, again, with these inner exercises. So, and, and it doesn't take that long once you focus on what we call this right problem of yeah. making students personally powerful, wise, and responsible. These students then are able to turn their focus, their attention, on the creating and learning and, and so the process changes from where it is today, which is teach, learn, test, move on, no matter what it is, a passing score, sure. to truly educate with these inner exercises. Then students learn how to self-organize work. We use lean agile techniques. Then they create and learn. And then the next part of the process is we have them feel good about it using neuropsychological exercises. And it's a virtuous cycle. You know, kids find out that they're growing up just fine, that they're able to do the work. And they, and, they, and they find out they're becoming responsible. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing for each individual. But importantly, this solves a structural and organizational problem of how do you get many students working to their own ability despite the fact that the one adult has only one mouth. Yeah. And so there's a lot more to it. It's a method of management. But the core of the idea is to make these beautiful students magnificently, personally powerful. Mm-hmm. Yep. Let's, uh, I, this is great stuff. Uh, we need to take a little break. I want to come back after the break and talk a little bit more about this and, and talk about um, um, uh, talk about your uh, book, Schooling This for Readiness to Drive, and, and your other ideas that you just mentioned. So let's uh, let's take Thanks, a little Ray break. And, okay, good. So uh, this is uh, Big Beacon Radio with special guest Bob Cavanio of Bob Cavani of Schoolio.org. Stay with us, and in the next segment, we're going to dive deeper into these subjects. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call one 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. I'm Dave Goldberg, and the second segment is sponsored by 3Joy Associates Incorporated. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership consultation to help transform your educational institution. And you can ask our guest, uh, Bob Caveney uh, uh, from Schoolio.org, uh, questions or make comments at uh, on Twitter at hashtag Big Beacon. So uh, we're back with, with uh, Bob Caveney. And, and uh, Bob, in the last segment, we were talking um, we were talking a little bit about Schoolio and the uh, I.O. method. Uh, in 2010, you wrote a book, Schooling for Readiness and Drive. Uh, books are pretty big uh, undertakings. Uh, what motivated that project? Uh, you know, David, the, what motivated that is that uh, I, I, I kept getting an objection, you know, um, when I would talk to people about what I would learn. They would say, well, who are you? Are you a teacher? I mean, what's, what are your bona fides, you know? Yeah. And, uh, as I, and when, I would, when I first started out, for the first couple of years, I kept, you know, asking people, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And then after a while, I realized that there actually isn't any such thing as an education expert in K-12, it just it doesn't exist in the same way that you and I would think of an expert, you know. So plumbers are experts because they can come in and diagnose, you know, our plumbing system. They can fix it. They give us a bill. We pay it. They leave. They go and they fix the next one. So a real expert in education would be able to go to, you know, Washington, D.C. school system or Chicago's school system or Oakland school system or San Francisco's or whatever and fix it and move on. That's what an education expert could do if they were really an expert. So somehow I had to establish that I might know something, and the way you do that is you write a book, and then you get um, endorsements, and then after that, you, you at least have the opportunity of getting a conversation started. And so these days, when I, when I sign up schools to um, migrate them from the, this 1890 method they're using to this other method, um, I basically just walk in and introduce myself to a principal and say, uh, Hi, I'm Bob. I don't know anything about teaching. And I shut up. 
And they say, well, why are you here? And I said, well, I, I did write a book about the school system part with a smile, you know. And we have a nice conversation. It's, it's a very easy conversation. Um, when I meet teachers, you know, the first thing I tell them is, you have an impossible job, you know. They give you students who are different. They tell you to teach lesson plans on a schedule. Some are ahead, some are bored, and, and, and you have no control over that environment. And they say, thank you. That's, that's, that's exactly right, you know. So the book basically just was a, uh, allowed me to have, to have more conversations with more people. Well, and, and, the, and the story you told before about uh, the, the second, I think your second unleashing moment where you, you realized um, uh, what the, some of the, what the underlying obstacle to being able to Im- Im- improve uh, results in the classroom and get, pe- get young people engaged in the classroom. Um, but it seems to me that that, you know, that, that's, um, it's almost like an efficiency, quality expert kind of point of view. It's an industrial point of view. And when you, in your book, you start the book and you talk a, a little bit about the history of industrial practices, going back to you know Frederick Taylor's uh, scientific management. What is what's the connection between the history of industrial practices and and what's that have to tell us about uh, schooling practices? So it's a it's an interesting story. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a great book by uh, Pat uh, Callahan uh, about 1960 called Education and the Cult of Efficiency, which describes blow by blow what I'm about to uh, summarize. You know? So in 1890, Frederick Winslow Taylor invented a follow-the-schedule assembly line method. By 1900, this method was proven. By 1910, the whole world was using it. Russia was using it. Yeah. And it worked spectacularly well spectacularly well for increasing productivity, for example, for making Model Ts. And the reason is because if everyone follows the schedule in a production line, then no one slows down the line, you know? I mean, it actually, it actually makes sense. He actually does something counterintuitive, lowers the priority of quality, raises the priority of follow the schedule. So those, now those, I'll go over in a second how the, how the school adopted this method, but we all know that during the school year, the, super, the, the school district has a few tests along the schedule. Well, on a production line, those tests actually make sense. Those inspections detect defects in a Model T so they can pull it off into a side repair process. So, again, so nobody slows down the production line. Um, now... By 1910, the, you know, the whole world was using it. It was being used in agriculture, mining, manufacturing. And people were leaving uh, the fields and droves, filling up cities and factories and schools and creating a schooling crisis. And um, journalists put a great deal of pressure on school leaders to use what they thought was the obvious solution, Taylor's follow-the-schedule method. And so in 1913... They, they acquiesced to this public pressure and began adapting Taylor's follow-the-schedule method to schools, and we've been using it ever since. Uh, one of the people who um, helped uh, adapt this method is the name of Franklin Bobbitt. Uh, he is, uh, as far as I can tell, the first person who uh, systematized curriculum, which was necessary in order to design a schedule that everybody else would follow. Now... As the decades have gone by, um, 
you know, we've sort of forgotten that we're using a method. If you ask a principal or a teacher or a superintendent or a school board member, so what method of management are you using? Are you using in your schools? They, uh, most of the time, they can't tell you. Uh, I've run across very few uh, superintendents that know that they're using an 1890-follow-the-schedule assembly line method in their schools. Yeah, and that and and that's so interesting. And of course, and, and you follow the you you go back to that point in in history, and then you point out that um, we've had uh, Peter Drucker's called um, the use of that method, and you know, so it's fine and it's fine to use that method for rote tasks, modern. Modern motivational understanding tells us that we can use carrots and sticks in rote tasks, but not in the least little bit creative tasks um, if we want to want to be successful. And so th- there's there's water over the motivational and industrial dams that tells us that by current best practices we're not not uh, uh, we're not up to snuff. Comment. That, that, that's exactly right, David. You make a very very important point there. So the, the reason Taylor's follow-schedule method doesn't work in schools is twofold. One, unlike Model T cars, kids are different. And so, you know, we're not going to be able to get them to fit into a one-size-fits-all follow-schedule method. It's an impossible job and a long job. The second reason is that the type of work we're doing in school districts is different than adding value incrementally, you know, on a, on a, on a production line where there's actually two kinds of work done in schools. One is the what I call the true education work, which is leaving out the ability of students to wisely and responsibly themselves, which mm-hmm. is done by true educators, trained educators. And the second kind of work is the work you just alluded to, which is the knowledge work, the creating and learning, which can only be done by, by students themselves. Uh, and the, the Drucker, by the way, who you just brought up, I thought brilliantly um, stated sort of the problem of the one of the many in knowledge work, um, which is, um, you know, how do you, in, 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 if you go to IBM or uh, any big company that does, has a lot of knowledge workers, the problem is Drucker understands that problem is different than adding value incrementally. The problem is, how do you manage people who know a lot more about what they're doing then does their manager, <laughs> which is a pretty good question, you know. And so uh, you've got one adult in the room, but you've got 30 students, all very different with different interests and dreams. If, if they can wisely responsible use freedom to choose challenges in their zone, more aligned with their own purpose, they become great knowledge workers, you know. So I hope that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. And, and, um, I guess you know. There's one thing, and I've and and I think a lot a lot of people have been inspired by modern quality methods to think about education. There and their papers and books have been written. I believe the various quality um, societies have educational components where they're devoted to applying the latest in quality thinking. I, I guess I'm. There's a part of me that um, that's still too industrial about quality thinking for for schools if we're if we're thinking you know a lot of what and and maybe we went too far in in a whole new engineer but we called out the cultural underpinnings of schools as well as the emotional underpinnings and and all of these systems are um, designed to 
to be extremely rational. And, and even though people call out the emotional, there are emotional components in Deming's thinking and so forth, um, it still seems to me that the, uh, the, the assembly line and quality improvement and rooting out error and, and so forth goes a goes a little too far in, in in not understanding that we're not we're not producing widgets we're 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 working with human beings and I, that was uh, my assessment and I and um, and maybe uh, somewhat contrary to I I, I get the I, I too have been inspired by quality methods and wondered if we can't apply them in schools and I I come up a little short what how do you react to what yeah, I just said? Yeah, yeah. So I, I first of all, I, I completely agree with everything you just said. You know, I completely agree. You know, the, the Deming's the, the highest priority of Deming's quality method, which is a beautiful method. I mean, it is. It's, I'm, I'm yeah. like you. I'm, I'm inspired by it as well. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, his highest priority is two words: reduce variation. You know. Yeah. So he wants he wants to reduce the variation. You know, of defects, you know, down to you know six sigma, you know, which is you know, it's amazing what companies are able to produce these days in terms of high quality and and low cost using Deming's method. But yep. that's the last thing we want in education. We don't want to reduce variation. We want to you know, students to become themselves, and we can't tell them who that is. <laughs> they need to discover that for themselves. There is, yeah. however, I think a way to subsume. Um, we actually do this consciously. We uh, subsume Deming's quality method into the I.O. method, but, uh, but align it differently. So, uh, and I'll give you a very changeable example. So, you know, as, as adults, we need to take responsibility that at a minimum, students are ready this year for next year, okay? Um, we, we, just, we just have to. If we can't at a minimum do that, um, we're, we're letting students fall behind. And this is extraordinarily easy to do with a simple, uh, uh, simply using Deming's method. I'll, I'll give you an example. So you know, I, I do this all the time with, uh, with educators and superintendents and principals, and they, they, they don't believe it's possible. So I'll say, so in sixth grade, but I'm going to use the old California uh, standards versus the new Common Core, but, but the, I, I think it can be applied. Uh, with the new standards as well. At the time, um, every year um, in California, too many fifth graders left fifth grade unready for sixth grade math. Happened every year. You know? yep. And the reason is pretty simple. It's because they're using this follow schedule method, teach, learn, test, move on, no matter what it is, the passing score. Yep. So, but, but if you apply Deming's method, you can fairly easily get students ready for sixth grade math with three steps. It's amazing. So the first step is you go to the sixth grade math and you ask one question. What does a student absolutely need to be ready to learn sixth grade math? And if you look at all of the, at the time there was exactly 50 official math proficiency standards in sixth grade math. And if you look at them, you find out, well, they need basic math. They need addition and subtraction, multiplication and division, long division, uh, all of those with decimals, and the ability to multiply and divide fractions. Because Sixth-grade math involves challenges which involve a series of basic math operations, you know, least common multiple ordering mixed numbers on number line. So yep. we just did step number one. Step number two is a little counterintuitive. You go back to elementary school, and you actually lower the priority of learning fifth-grade math, and you raise the priority of being ready for sixth-grade math. 
And what do they need? Well, all they, they need additional subtraction from first grade, nothing from second grade, um, multiplication and division from third grade, long division from fourth, uh, all of those are decimals in fifth, and the ability to multiply and divide fractions in fifth. And we just change priorities in, in, the, in the second step. The third step is to stop at the, at, and this is a little counterintuitive, stop at the beginning of fifth grade, not the end of fifth grade, at the very beginning, and have every student become ready for sixth grade math. And when you do your Pareto analysis, you find out that, well, some students are already ready. Some students maybe have dyslexia. Some uh, can't hear very well. Some can't see very well. But you, you make sure and get every single student ready. And by the way, when you do this, you'll solve problems for other subjects as well. You know? um, and what's beautiful about this, that if you, once you get them ready, you say, well, by the way, students, uh, you're ready for sixth grade math. You're in fifth grade. And I'm just saying, it's up to you, but if you want, you can go ahead and just start the sixth grade math instead of fifth grade. You know? And now they're, now they're starting to find their own level. You know? So there's some simple processes we can use in them to, at a minimum, get students ready for next year. Um, but we would never want to align schools with Deming's priority, which is reduced variation, maybe reduced variation of readiness. But in every other way, we want to enable students to become able to self-direct their natural drive to learn, to discover their own purpose, discover their own interests, be ready for the sudden autonomy of graduation with knowing enough about themselves and the world to know where they want to go, you know. So it's, it's a very different aim than Deming's method. The Iowa method is a very much more well, profound human aim. Yeah, well, and I, I think there, this goes to the, I think, the, the opposites that are, you know, there are some of the, it's probably more than one opposite. I, the, the whole topic of opposites, I think, education reform, education transformation is just rife with opposites. So there's sort of, so this, so you, you, you know the the detailed discussion of the logic of of um, getting ready for sixth grade math is is a reduction of variance and 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 rightly so if you want people to be able to go on and and be ready for what's coming next uh, that analysis makes sense and and uh, it's a it's um, it's a a different reduction of variance but it's an appropriate reduction of variance and then on the other hand what you said before we want to sort of maximize the search for individuality and authenticity sort of so we're actually maximizing authentic variance inside of 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 individuals in an interesting way and so it's so but so we're actually doing two different things and that's part of our problem because we have trouble focusing on these opposites as kind of being valued we're either doing one or the other and and most meth most methods kind of take one as primary as the as the as the dominant dominant pole I, I think it's a I think it's a very important point you're making, and and so this this stuff about m- management and methods, you know, um, it's it's not necessarily easy to learn, but once you get it, yeah. you really really get it. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. You know. Nope, and, and I and I and I, I think you're I think the things you're talking about do do focus on the on on these two different things and say they're both important and and uh, and. And and your structure does um, does allow for that. We need to take we need to take uh, our 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 last break uh, before our third segment. And let's come back after that break and and um, want to dive into this um, some of uh, what you were thinking about back in 2010 when this core belief that keeps us stuck in the old ways. If that makes sense. 
from the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Our final segment is sponsored by Big Beacon's upcoming webinar. Join us Wednesday, 18 January 2017 at 4 p.m. Eastern for our webinar, Keys to Ineffective Educational Change or How to Botch Transformation Without Really Trying. Learn the four mistakes that people make in modern change initiatives and how to overcome them. And learn how you can join Big Beacon's three communities of innovators today. Go to bigbeacon.org to sign up or write to me, Dave Goldberg, at deg at bigbeacon.org to find out more. And we're uh, rejoined in this final segment by Bob Caveney of schoolio.org. And, and Bob, we've been just talking about some really important stuff about uh, educational change and, and how schools are, are managed. And I, I really like this idea you've got of a... Um, core belief um, or a key underlying assumption of uh, K-12 school culture that has us stuck. What What's that all about? So, yeah, so early in my thinking, my, and my thinking has deepened since then, but mainly an emphasis, that what I kept hearing from the so-called experts was that, and this is a phrase I heard over and over again, that ultimately the quality of education depends upon the teacher, you know. And, of course, this was, this statement uh, showed uh, an obliviousness to the actual method of management that they were using. So, what I what I argue is that if we assume that we need uh, teachers to be able to teach better, you know, teach lesson plans better and better and better, um, but what if that's the wrong job? You know, teaching if you're teaching a lesson plan really well, okay, but you have students in the class who already know the lesson, you can't teach them any better. And if you have students unready for the lesson, you can't teach them any better. And so ask any teacher. They'll tell you that they sort of teach to the middle and move them along the schedule. They do the best they can, given the environment they're working in. So it's very important to understand that we're we're trying to solve the wrong problem. The teacher credential essentially says the holder is able to do the wrong job well. 
teacher colleges are accredited to teach teachers how to do the wrong job well. It's a whole sector problem. But if, if, if educators were trained in the ability to lead out the ability of students to wisely and responsibly lead themselves, and they were also trained in all of the methods of management so that the people in the schools themselves could step outside and work on the system and not just be forced to work in the system, now we're both working at the, the bringing out the best from each individual person and we're able to work on the organization as a whole. And we, we believe working in that domain is sort of working on the right problem and, you know, working, and working on, on, on teaching better lesson plans is working on the, the wrong problem. Well, and in your book, you, you say this core belief, um, man, one of the ways we can see the core belief is in some of the odd ways that education talks about itself. So when we look at K-12 education, we blame the unions but uh, in other in other industrial organizations, when there's a when there's a quality problem, we don't we don't blame. Well, sometimes we do, but we no, we don't usually blame the we usually blame the the management structure or the industry for kind of not uh, not keeping up with uh, world standards. Comment, David. I'm so glad you brought this up because there's a there's a great story that makes this point really well. This is a true story, you know. Um, so uh, after World War II, uh, the Jap- this is a true story. This is an amazing yep. story. The Japanese quality got higher and higher and higher, yep. and their costs got lower. Uh, to the point by, by 1970, uh, we could not compete in uh, cars, trucks, radios, or TVs. They just had superior quality and simultaneously lower costs. Okay, and so we formed a circular firing squad and took turns blaming workers workers' unions, managers, and for good measure, parents for raising lazy Americans. And then years go by, and then in 1980, um, a journalist, Lloyd Dobbin, goes to Japan to find out how they do it, and they find out they're using a different method of management. They're using Deming's method. And so he puts on a TV show uh, titled, If Japan Can, Why Can't We? And the whole world migrated from Taylor's follow-the-schedule method in manufacturing to Deming's beautiful quality method. And as a result, today you can buy a high-quality car anywhere in the world, even here. And so what we're suggesting in K-12 is to do essentially the same thing, migrate from an 1890 follow schedule method to a method that is appropriate for the type of the beautiful human work we're doing in schools. And so... How does that and and so can you give us some examples of of you've, you've worked with schools and you've you've taken these in 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 a practical way into uh, schools? Actually, the, the maybe the, my first part of the question is when you talk about this kind of when you talk about industrial methods and and, and the method of organization and management of schools with um, with school administrators, what's the what's the reaction? So at the, uh, my record for getting kicked out of a superintendent's office is 15 minutes. Um, it's a very political job. Uh, they don't want to take risks. Uh, school board members the same way. Um, I find that the resistance is mainly at that level. Um, uh, principals and teachers, it's an easy conversation. Um, you know, you know what, I, what I emphasize is standing shoulder to shoulder 
and not blaming people, but blaming the method and working together on building a better system. And so it's a, it's a very relaxing conversation, and it's also a very human conversation. Um, you know, uh, David, um, teachers leave the profession in droves uh, because it's painful to be forced to move kids forward on a schedule who they know are not ready. Um, it is a, is a huge crisis in uh, a teacher shortage in California because they hate the job, essentially, you know? And so, you know, when, when, we, when we talk about industrialization and talk about how, it's, how schools are really based on this old, kind of this heartless follow-the-schedule method, and then we, tra- we transform the conversation into talking about leading out students' own ability, you know, to compassionately, responsibly, wisely lead themselves, it's a beautiful thing. And, and, and people are drawn to that idea. It's an old idea. It's not, it's not my idea, you know. And by the sure. way, there, there was a, um, there's a program in the, in the UK uh, called Teens and Toddlers. Uh, it's not done in school, um, but they take at-risk uh, teenagers and, who are not involved in education uh, the same way that the general population is. And in a very short period of time, they become more involved in education than the general population by having these teenagers discover who they are with this, uh, this psychology, you know. And it, it, ch- it changes how they approach their own lives. It changes their families. It's a beautiful thing. This is real education work. It's not industrial, you know. Yes, we have to use a method of management to bring out the best from each person, organize the many to produce this beautiful result, but it's very, very human work. Well, and... Yeah, this is really interesting, and, and you, you started the show by talking about the psychological nature of the work, and, and so they're seeing more and more people focus on mindfulness and awareness. Uh, the, you see the, oh, um, the so-called habits of mind work or uh, Gail Greenbaum's work on, on um, uh, essentially a, a moment of, of silence and reflection um, how how does how does that play? How does this kind of developing the wisdom, or how does that play out practically? What it, what do you teach the kids to be mindful about? So the um, I'm a little bit critical of the word uh, mindful because mind is is used in so many different kinds of ways. You know, you know we, we use our mind to think, but uh, who is minding? You know, um, so per, perhaps the, the best way I can answer your question is to provide a, um, uh, an example of one of the inner psychological exercises that mm-hmm. we use at the, in, the very, in the first three days of school, you know. So after uh, we've had the students' minds quieted down with some guided imagery um, and, and the students are a little more receptive to paying attention for more than a few seconds, yeah. um, we, ha- we have the educator pull out a, a pen and say, students, watch, I'm going to tap my pen on my desk three times. One, two, three. And the reason I did this, students, is I, I have a question for us to consider. So who inside me tapped the pen? Now, what do I mean by that? Did my thoughts tap the pen? Well, no, I have thoughts, but I am not my thoughts. Now, you, you may have seen me get my feelings hurt. Uh, did, my, did it look like my feelings tapped the pen? didn't look like it, did it? 
And it wasn't my body. My body just did what I told it to do. And if I grabbed one of your arms and made you tap a pen, it's not you tapping a pen, it's still me. Here's what I'm getting at, students. I, I want you to understand how powerful you are, okay? I can't make you do anything, and I will never even try. What I will do, and this is my job, is I will help you discover your own interests and dreams and then become so powerful you can achieve your own interests and dreams. And at some point, a student's going to say very skeptically, right, you're not going to make me learn math. And the right answer is, no, I'm not going to make you learn math. It's, in fact, it's impossible. I don't control what happens in your head. Okay? However, you're going to learn that choices come with consequences. So you could choose to fall behind and catch up and fall behind and catch up, and that's fine. But if you chose to fall too far behind, the school might choose to hold you back a year. So... Here's my suggestion. If there's something you really don't want to learn, use the power you get here in this room to learn it as fast as possible and then go back to learning what you're learning. But keep an open mind. It might be more interesting than you thought or it might lead to something more interesting. But in any case, you'll feel terrific that you used your power to get this work done. So essentially, David, if... And I, I, I run this by parents all the time. I, I, I don't get, get disagreement. If students emerge from high school having learned enough about themselves and the world to know what's interesting to them, and they have the personal power to pursue that, okay? And as parents, we're happy. They're well launched. You know? And so that's, that's what we're aiming to do with this IO method. I hope this makes sense. Mm-hmm. Ted, we've only got about a minute left, and so I want to give you just a, there are many things that we, I would have liked to have talked about with you, but what, um, what would you like our, what would you like to leave our listeners with about the, about your work? Well, um, it's, if, the main thing is that if we focus on the wrong problem for a long time, we'll never make progress. And the beautiful thing about this is that we believe we're working on the right problem, uh, getting students personally powerful and learning a lot about the world. We do a lot of learning, you know. Uh, and if, they, if people would like more information, I encourage them to go to schoolio.org, uh, click on contact, and uh, send us an email. We'll put them on a list. And they're most welcome to send a note along with that as well if they would like to talk to me. That's great, Bob, and I, I hope our listeners do go to your website and uh, keep up the important work and uh, look forward to further conversations with you. Thanks very much, David. I really appreciate this conversation. You're doing great work as well, and I'm looking forward to collaborating some more. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Special thanks to our, our guest, Bob Caveney, and, and Help Transform Higher Education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, in our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. 
We'll talk again very soon.